The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Leveraging the Power of Anti-CD20 Monoclonal Antibodies in Patient-Centric Multiple Sclerosis Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JWS 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, welcome to Leveraging the Power of Anti-CD20 Monoclonal Antibodies in Patient-Centric Multiple Sclerosis Care. My name is Bruce Cree. I'm the George A. Zimmerman Endowed Professor in Multiple Sclerosis and Professor of Clinical Neurology at the UCSF Weill Institute for Neurosciences. So all good neurology stories begin with a case, and in this case presentation, we're going to discuss a patient who's a 55-year-old right-handed woman with a past medical history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia, who presents with difficulty of knowing where her foot was in relationship to the floor. The patient also describes leg heaviness and that she walked with a limp. On examination, she's got a normal mental status. Her cranial nerves are all, all intact, but she has left hip flexor and tibialis anterior weakness in the four plus out of five range. Proprioception is impaired in her left toes, returning at the ankle, She's got brisk left leg reflexes with a left Babinski sign. She's got normal coordination, a mildly left paretic gait, and her timed 25-foot walk is 6.6 seconds. Per her report, she's got normal bowel control, but has new onset of nocturia times three. Here's her MRI scan. And what you can see on the MRI is an area of abnormal signal change on T1-weighted imaging, which is hypo-intense. Following contrast administration, you can see that this lesion enhances. You can see it is also being bright on flare imaging, as well as being bright on diffusion-weighted imaging. So this is an acute area of abnormal signal change. She has several other areas of abnormal signal change present on the brain MRI as well. And spinal cord imaging shows a subtle area of increased signal change in the mid-dorsum of the cord at C2, C3 that did not enhance. Her T-spine MRI showed a normal appearing spinal cord. She undergoes a battery of laboratory studies, including a complete blood count, a basic metabolic panel, liver function tests, thyroid function tests, coagulation assays. She's uh, tested for protein S, protein C, uh, antithrombin 3, an ANA, an ESR, rheumatoid factor, anti-cardiolipin antibodies, a Lyme antibody, vitamin B12. All of these studies were either negative or normal. She's also tested for the JC virus and varicella zoster virus, which are both seropositive. She undergoes a lumbar puncture and is found to have two white blood cells, five red blood cells, protein of 28, glucose of 59. The IgG index is elevated at 0.83, and she's got five unique oligoclonal bands that are not present in a corresponding serum sample. Lyme Western blot showed no bands, and the VDRL is non-reactive. She is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So she's treated with intravenous methylprednisolone for five days, and after a few days, notices that her balance improves. However, her left leg continues to feel heavy. She then goes on and develops left fingertip numbness that spreads to her right hand after three weeks, and this symptom ebbs and flows in terms of severity. She's initially reticent to start a disease-modifying therapy, but following the second event, she's now willing to begin treatment and asks the question, if I were your sister, what therapy would you recommend? 
So when we think about multiple sclerosis, pathophysiology, traditionally we have thought of MS as being primarily a T-cell mediated disease. And this stems from a number of observations. One, histopathologically, we tend to see aggregates of T-cells within acute MS plaques. A lot of experimental biology has focused on the T-cells, and the role of B-cells and macrophages has been seen to be really uh, acting upon orders uh, made by the T-cells. So we have a pro-inflammatory idea here about multiple sclerosis, which is T-cell-driven. In more recent years, though, we have begun to understand that MS is not just a T-cell-mediated process, but there are other cells that play an equally important role. And B-cells have become increasingly recognized as having a fundamental role in MS pathophysiology. And together with T-cells, B-cells, and macrophages, this, these cells are the ones that underlie new lesion formation in MS. Now, B-cells have a variety of processes which they're involved with. Of course, we think of B-cells in terms of producing antibodies, and autoantibodies could very well have some role in multiple sclerosis. Certainly, we see them present in the spinal fluid, as we did in the example of this patient. B-cells are also involved in presenting antigen to T-cells and activating T-cells. So they are professional antigen-presenting cells. And they also produce a variety of cytokines as well that could have pro-inflammatory effects. I think very importantly, one of the key recognitions about multiple sclerosis is that B cells are involved in ectopic follicle-like structure formation. And these ectopic follicle-like structures are present within the brain and meninges of MS patients and are a pathological hallmark of MS. And I think this is a very important observation that has been made. We see these type of ectopic follicle-like structures in other disease states, including other autoimmune diseases and malignancies in other organ systems, but they seem to be relatively unique to multiple sclerosis. So traditionally, we have thought about MS as being a process which is driven by neuroinflammation. And then as a consequence of that neuroinflammation, we see a degenerative process unfold. However, more recent evidence indicates that the inflammation and neurodegeneration processes are occurring not one after the other, but together in parallel, so that neurodegeneration begins right at disease onset and may even begin before patients are symptomatic. So the CNS events may initiate uh, clinical symptomatology uh, in multiple sclerosis and lead to ongoing neuroinflammation. We're now going to turn into a mechanism of action of anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies and how they target and eliminate B-cells. Anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies target B-cell populations that express the CD20 molecule on the cell surface. In the treatment of MS, there are four anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies with distinct structural and CD20 binding characteristics. These antibodies include rituximab, a chimeric IgG1 antibody, ocrelizumab, a humanized IgG1 antibody, ofatumumab, a fully human IgG1 antibody, and ublituximab, a chimeric glycoengineered IgG1 antibody. Ocrelizumab and rituximab bind to overlapping epitopes in the large loop of the CD20 molecule. Ofatumumab binds to a unique epitope in the large loop and an epitope in the small loop. And ublituximab binds to two non-overlapping epitopes in the large loop. 
When anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies bind to CD20 on the surface of B cells, they activate two mechanisms that result in B cell destruction, antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, or ADCC, and complement-dependent cytotoxicity, or CDC. ADCC occurs when FC receptors on effector cells, such as natural killer cells or macrophages, bind the FC region of the anti-CD20 antibodies that are attached to targeted B cells, leading to the release of cytotoxic factors that cause the death of the targeted cell. ADCC is the primary effector mechanism of ocrelizumab and ublituximab. CDC is initiated by the binding of the complement protein C1Q to the FC region of anti-CD20 antibodies that are bound to targeted B cells. This initiates the activation of the complement cascade and leads to the formation of the membrane attack complex on the cell surface, causing pores to develop on the cell surface that disrupt the cellular membrane, resulting in B cell death. Both rituximab and ofatumumab mediate their effects mainly through CDC. So there's some practical considerations in thinking about anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies. Several anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies have been developed and investigated in multiple sclerosis. The first one that has been examined is rituximab, which is FDA-approved for treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and rheumatoid arthritis. This is a chimeric antibody. And early experiments in MS about 20 years ago showed that there was an impact of rituximab on lesion formation and relapses in relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. Um, Ocrelizumab was the product that was moved forward into development and was the first anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody to be approved in multiple sclerosis. And this is a humanized antibody and has less murine protein. And then more recently, another antibody, this is anti-CD20 ofatumumab, is a fully uh, human monoclonal antibody, and this also received FDA approval for treatment of relapsing MS. Currently under review by the US FDA is ublituximab, which is a glycoengineered chimeric antibody. So we will have uh, potentially three monoclonal antibodies to select from that have received regulatory approval for treatment in relapsing MS, and one of which has received regulatory approval for treatment in primary progressive multiple sclerosis. I'm going to talk a little bit more about ocrelizumab. So ocrelizumab was studied in two large phase three clinical trials in relapsing MS, and these were called the OPERA 1 and 2 studies. The OPERA 1 and 2 trials compared ocrelizumab to uh, thrice-weekly interferon beta-1A. And so these were head-to-head comparator studies, and the objective of the trial was to determine whether the drugs were comparable or one drug was superior to the other. As it turned out, ocrelizumab was superior to thrice-weekly interferon beta-1A on all clinical outcomes. So it was superior in terms of prevention of relapses, superior in terms of prevention of disability worsening, and had very robust effects in terms of new lesion formation. One of the things which was quite striking is that, of course, both drugs are quite effective, and thrice-weekly interferon beta-1A had already been approved for use in multiple sclerosis and had robust effects in terms of new lesion formation. But here, the data shows that beyond the impact of thrice-weekly interferon beta-1A, use of ocrelizumab almost completely suppressed new lesion formation. And you can see this quite clearly as patients transitioned from active treatment with thrice-weekly interferon beta-1A 
onto ocrelizumab, new brain lesions almost entirely stopped forming. Very impressive results. Now, ocrelizumab was also investigated in a study called Oratorio, which was a trial done in primary progressive multiple sclerosis. Now, primary progressive MS is, of course, somewhat different from relapsing multiple sclerosis in that patients typically don't have clinical attacks. In fact, they can't have any clinical attacks at disease onset, and during the course of the disease, it's characterized by relentless worsening in terms of disability, uh, with very rare superimposed attacks and only occasional new lesion formation. However, the disability worsening over time uh, results in significant impairments, and many studies have sought to find an effect of various medications on primary progressive MS. This was the first trial that successfully did so. And you can see that there is an impact of ocrelizumab versus placebo in terms of prevention of confirmed disability worsening. Also a robust effect in terms of new lesion formation, just like you would expect based on the relapsing MS data, and also an impact on um, slowing of brain volume loss. Ofatumumab uh, was investigated as a next CD20, next generation anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody in two studies called Asclepios 1 and 2. And instead of comparing versus thrice-weekly interferon beta-1A, the active comparator selected was teraflunamide, 14 milligrams. And so again, Asclepios uh, 1 and 2 compared ofatumumab, which is administered by subcutaneous injection once per month, in contrast to ocrelizumab, which is administered by IV infusion twice a year, and compared uh, ofatumumab to teraflunamide, an oral once-daily medication FDA-approved for treatment in MS. And the primary endpoint was looking at the annualized relapse rate with secondary endpoints, looking at three-month and six-month confirmed disability worsening and a variety of other outcomes. So in Asclepios 1 and 2, there were also robust effects favoring ofatumumab over teraflunamide in terms of relapse prevention, new lesion formation, and confirmed disability worsening. There is also an effect in terms of confirmed disability improvement. Now we have some long-term data as well from Asclepios, uh, where individuals treated with ofatumumab over the long term have fewer relapses, uh, have ongoing benefits in terms of disability worsening, and have relatively low rates of adverse events and serious infections as well. And so uh, we know that this product can be used safely over the long term. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is administered by subcutaneous injection once per month, which is different from ocrelizumab, where it's an IV infusion twice a year. And you might ask the question, well, for something which is a sub-Q injection, wouldn't you have more injection reactions, and of course you're going to get some, but these tend to be mild uh, to moderate and usually are, are quite self-limited. And since it's only one injection a month, most patients can tolerate this quite well. So sort of thinking back and forth as a clinician between these two potential products, uh, since they both have robust effects and have demonstrated efficacy in randomized controlled trials with active comparator studies, how do you select between these two? And I think it's a matter of personal preference. I think both products are very good products. They have excellent track records in terms of efficacy and safety. And really, it comes down to a matter of personal preference, whether somebody wants to come in for an infusion twice a year versus getting a subcutaneous injection at home once per month. 
Now, the next uh, CD20 monoclonal antibody is ublituximab. And ublituximab was investigated in two twin studies in relapsing MS, uh, the ultimate one and two studies. Like ocrelizumab, it is administered by IV infusion twice a year, but different from ocrelizumab, it can be more rapidly infused. And this is due to the fact of its glycoengineering, which allows better binding with the FC gamma receptor. And so the drug can be administered at lower doses and can be administered over a rapid one-hour infusion. So there are some advantages there with respect to the infusion time. This drug was compared uh, as uh, uh, ofatumumab was to teraflunamide, 14 milligrams. And in this study, ubituximab was found to be superior to teraflunamide in relapse prevention and in preventing new lesion formation on brain MRI. However, there was no difference between ubituximab and teraflunamide with regard to disability progression. In these particular trials, both drugs worked very well in terms of prevention of disability worsening. However, uh, ublituximab was also looked at uh, in terms of new lesion formation and new T1 hypointense lesions, as well as uh, the overall effects in terms of NIDA, and there were robust effects in terms of an impact on new hypointense lesion formation uh, compared to teraflunamide, as well as robust effects in terms of no evidence of disease activity. In addition, confirmed disability worsening was investigated, and there were also robust effects in terms of confirmed disability improvement. Uh, ublituximab uh, was found to be superior to teraflunamide in terms of 12-week confirmed disability improvement. So even though there was no uh, relative difference between the two drugs in terms of confirmed disability worsening, I think there is good data to suggest that this product does have an effect on disability, uh, because of the results with confirmed disability improvement. There are also robust effects in terms of improvement in function in terms of the nine-hole PEG test, which is a test of upper arm function. So now when we think about our uh, meeting our patient needs with evidence-based individualized care, I want to return back to our case. Uh, so the patient had initially uh, presented in late 2015 by 2016 uh, she was now willing to consider disease-modifying therapies, and we had a, a dedicated discussion about risks and benefits of all the available DMTs at that time, and ultimately she decided to begin fingolimod. Her decision was based on the convenience of a once-daily oral therapy, excellent tolerability, and robust efficacy, including an impact on prevention of brain volume loss. Patient stated that she was not ready for treatments that were intravenously infused because of her busy travel schedule, and she is an executive in the aerospace industry. A year later, she developed a sensation as if she were being pulled to the left, and she had gait ataxia. This lasted for about a three-week period of time and gradually resolved over the next month. She also endorsed difficulty with mild cognitive slowing, which she noticed when she was fatigued. She had ongoing intermittent paresthesias in her hands and still had that left leg heaviness. Her EDSS at the time was 3.0. Now, at this point, she's interested in advancing therapy, and her options included alemtuzumab, natalizumab, and ocrelizumab. Now, she tested seropositive for the JC virus, and so natalizumab was not a favored option. The patient was also concerned about the adverse event profile of de novo autoimmunity associated with alemtuzumab, 
And so she selected ocrelizumab and started this medication and found that it was very well tolerated. After one year of treatment, she was symptom-free, and her EDSS score was now 1.0. So there are a number of features here that affect patient preference and adherence. Uh, one is, of course, the mode of administration and convenience. Uh, In-office or clinic-based infusions versus home ad administration and timing of dosing. Uh, all of these are very important considerations. Uh, we run an infusion center at uh, our facility, and so we're able to infuse many of our patients, but some patients prefer to be infused at home, and there are home infusion services, and I think these can be safely used once the medication has been well-documented to be well-tolerated in a dedicated practice setting. Patients also make decisions based on a perception of risk and, and benefit and balance as well as tolerability, and I think this is extremely important, and of course in the United States, access to treatment is extremely important, and so Costs associated with treatment for patients, if they have a high out-of-pocket copay or have to do co-insurance, these factors weigh in heavily as well. So one of the things that's occurred, of course, in the last couple years is COVID-19. And a question that many of our patients have been asking us is, are they more vulnerable to COVID-19? Uh, are they at higher uh, risk of hospitalization and, and poorer outcomes? And generally speaking, MS patients uh, to date have not really been the target of COVID-19. Risk factors for COVID-19 very well characterized in terms of age, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular risk factors, pulmonary problems, uh, hypertension. Um, patients treated with, uh, who have multiple sclerosis and are treated tend to do a little bit better than patients who aren't on any therapy. However, some of the treatments that we have used uh, in MS may be associated with, with poorer outcomes than others. And one of the concerns has been that use of anti-CD20s might be associated with worse outcomes than use of other therapies uh, in MS. And one has to wonder why that might be the case. Certainly an anti-CD20 uh, is going to have uh, impact uh, in terms of adaptive immune function, but I think one of the things that needs to be investigated further is the potential role of anti-CD20s in reducing circulating IgM uh, levels, which can be very significantly reduced um, and can go to a very low level. And circulating IgM is, of course, part of the innate immune system's response to acute infection. And perhaps that is what's underlying this association between poorer outcomes in patients treated with anti-CD20s versus those on dimethylfumarate or other MS treatments. Now, vaccination, of course, has transformed the face of COVID in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and we know that vaccination reduces the severity of severe COVID, prevents hospitalizations, uh, it's not associated with MS relapses and is very safe for just about everybody to take. In fact, I can really think of, of no medical situation uh, where use of a COVID-19 vaccination is contraindicated. So for all MS patients, yes, it's okay to get vaccinated for sure. Now, one of the things we have noticed in many of our patients who are treated with B-cell depleting therapies and especially S1P receptor modulators is we tend to see lower rates of the humoral response to vaccination. And what I mean by the humoral response to vaccination is robust production of antibodies against the spike protein 
uh, which is the whole point, one of the main points of, of the vaccination. Now, T-cell responses in B-cell depleted patients tend to be intact, and so that's important to consider, and probably do offer some degree of partial protection. Some of the guidelines with respect to vaccination and timing with respect to ocrelizumab, uh, rituximab, ofatumumab are, are important to know about. Patients should be vaccinated at least two weeks prior to starting any of these therapies because we believe that if you are treated with one of these therapies and then are vaccinated immediately afterwards, the effect on the vaccine will be largely suppressed. In addition, we want the uh, drug to be on its way out of the system, and so we typically recommend about a 12-week delay after treatment before vaccination. And then uh, one would want to wait uh, you know, two to four weeks after a complete vaccination before resuming treatment in patients who are already on therapy. Now, all these decisions must be individualized with re respect to the overall COVID risk, the population-based risk, and so on. So one of the things that has been an issue that we've noted is that um, these anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies and S1P receptor modulators uh, tend to interfere with humoral responses to the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, ocrelizumab itself has not been associated with rebound disease activity after it has been um, stopped. And data from the phase two extension study of uh, ocrelizumab showed a long-term impact of ocrelizumab treatment on prevention of lesion formation on MRI and control of relapses. Now, B-cell repletion can begin as early as six months after the preceding dose in some patients, but really the median time to B-cell repletion to the lower limit of normal is somewhere on the order of 14 to 17 months. And this is a factor, uh, factors to consider here are the number of infusions, the more times patients have been treated, the longer it takes for the B cells to come back, and patient age. Older patients tend to replete slower than patients who are younger. Now, one of the things to consider here as we think about uh, holding medication to allow effective, ma um, effective uh, vaccine response is we want to wait for those B cells to come back. And, and minimal values of CD19 positive cells uh, have to be established still uh, to know where vaccines are effective. In my personal practice, I've seen robust vaccine responses around the time when we see somewhere between 50 and 100 CD19 positive cells per microliter. Now, several SARS-CoV-2 spike protein assays are commercially available. Data calibrating across these assays is somewhat limited, and exactly the correct thresholds for each assay that constitute adequate protection have not been established. I'm going to turn back to the case now and go through what we have did for this particular patient. My patient was vaccinated with a full-dose mRNA-1273 vaccine and received this three times. However, after testing for SARS-CoV-2 spike protein antibody, this test came back as negative. We decided to begin an ocrelizumab dosage suspension and checked lymphocyte subsets every two months beginning six months after her last ocrelizumab infusion. Ten months after the prior infusion, her B cells began to reconstitute, and she had a CD19 count greater than 50 cells per microliter. She was vaccinated with the fourth dose, and two weeks later, her SARS-CoV-2 spike protein antibody was positive 
with an index of 2,484, very similar to the types of values we see in MS patients treated with disease-modifying therapies that are not thought to interfere with COVID vaccine responses. Ocrelizumab was restarted, and important to consider during dosage suspension, she experienced no relapses or occurrence of prior symptoms, and her brain MRI prior to restarting ocrelizumab showed a stable burden of disease. So to summarize, B-cell depletion via anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies is a highly effective strategy for controlling disease activity in relapsing MS patients and is also moderately effective at prevention of disability worsening in patients with primary progressive multiple sclerosis. The decision as to whether to put a patient on one of these therapies, of course, is going to be an individualized one, and a selection amongst anti-CD20 antibody therapies is also going to have to take into account uh, factors such as tolerability and lifestyle factors as well. COVID has been with us for two years. It is extremely important for everyone to be vaccinated, and all MS patients can be safely vaccinated against COVID, including those who are in anti-CD20 antibodies, although there may be some specific recommendations that have to be individualized and tailored for each patient with respect to the timing of vaccination and administration of the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies. It's important to know that even with anti-CD20 treatments, patients can still develop robust responses to vaccination. This activity is certified by the University of Florida College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JWS 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.